0: Welcome to Telltales, an investing podcast hosted by Hunt Lawrence and Mike Nicoletti. As a reminder, nothing on this podcast should be considered investment advice. You should always do your own work to determine if an investment is suitable for you. I'm
1: going to try to do oil and gas and macro pretty quickly because Mike and I were talking earlier, and we have some interesting insights we want to talk through. Oil pricings, I think at this point, depends mostly on how mild or how serious Omicron is. The news that there was this variant became available the Friday after Thanksgiving. And of course, the markets, which were very thin that day, took flight, including the oil market the IEA, which is an organization of consuming states based in Paris, or the office is based in Paris, and OPEC has a whole raft of energy economists and whatnot based in Vienna, have come out with reports just in the last few days that pretty much agree with demand statistics. They're a little bit off on the supply statistics. And they both conclude that the Omicron variant is not going to have a great deal of impact on oil demand in the next 12 months, 18 months, 24 months. I certainly hope that's accurate, but it is something to keep in mind uh, in in trying to assess the oil markets. The other longer-term thing to keep in mind is every car manufacturer is planning to have a third or more of the cars they sell in five years' time, be battery cars. The overall impact on oil demand, you know, can be significant. The other point is that people who have fleets of trucks, think FedEx, think UPS, think Amazon delivery, are going to be very oriented towards going to battery trucks The reason is that the truck manufacturers, the Dodges and whatnot, are going to give longer warranties for battery-powered trucks because there's less to go wrong with them, I guess. And truck fleets generally run the trucks until the warranty. So if, if the warranty on a diesel truck or a gas truck is five years and the warranty on a battery truck is eight years, there's going to be quite a lot of conversion over to battery trucks because they generally don't run 24 hours a day. They come back to a central spot. They can be charged up in the in the central spot. So longer term, in other words, in 22 and 23, concerned about the impact of COVID, Omicron or some other variant, by the time you get out to 28, 29, 30, have to think about the impact of on gasoline and diesel demand, transportation fuel demand, of moving to batteries. That being said, Rosneft, the other Lukoil, the other Russian companies, Sadie Ramko, who now has quarterly financial reports, as as does Rosneft and Lukoil, it's no different than than. Leading independents in the U.S., or the larger companies in the U.S. And, and Europe, nobody over the next five years is going to spend more than their cash flow. Saudi Aramco is not going to spend more than their cash flow because they live on the cash flow. All, all of the Crown Prince's plans depend heavily on having cash flow over and above the amount that Saudi Aramco reinvests. In Russia, Rosneft, Yukol, the, the, the rest of the Russian oil industry, at least half the cash flow goes to finance their pension programs. It's not available to the back in the ground. If you're talking BP, Shell, Total, the European companies, where there's a lot more emphasis on climate activism, they not only will not invest all their cash flow. They will invest way less than half their cash flow. So they have dividends and stock buybacks. But increasingly, uh, you see in industry newsletters, when you see some company buying a uh, solar farm or a wind farm or some form making power in Europe or for that matter in North America, very often the backstop, it's a subsidiary or an alive company of shells or or VPs, or totals. I do not believe that the, you know, including condensate, you know, you see these numbers like 100 million barrels a day. Well, that includes condensate and NGLs and all kinds of liquids. The amount of black oil crude is probably only about 80 million barrels a day. So I don't think whether you're talking 80 million barrels a day or including all the NGLs and condensate, you're talking 100 million barrels a day. I've been at this a long time. I do not think you can hold that production flat, spending two thirds of the cash flow. It's just too hard. Wells to climb. So while could be getting to a position, you know, where we get peak oil demand. You know, the chance of having declining supply is there, even without macro events like wars breaking out in the Middle East or things like that. The people who do this for a living, who predict oil prices, the most notable recent call has been that Brent will average over the next five years, $80. So that'd be like $75, $76 on WTI. And that spikes might be as high as 125 Well, with those kinds of prices, you can and half or two-thirds of your cash flow, maybe even get a slight incline in your in your production, it doesn't look like a bad business, especially if you keep your debt low. You don't need to hedge. So when you get the volatility, which you're certainly having in European LNG and China LNG, you take advantage of the volatility. It doesn't look like a bad business. What you have to do is use like 30% of your cash flow as a dividend, Use some more to buy in stock, buying enough stock so that you can increase the dividend 7-8% a year without increasing the total amount of dividend. That, that looks a lot like what Star Group does. That's been you know a very successful formula. When we switch over to gas, it's a little different because gas isn't as much as a worldwide fuel. I mean, natural gas in the form of LNG is $30 in Europe. Natural gas in Louisiana you know, for the next month is like three eighty or something. It only costs two dollars to turn into LNG and one dollar to transport it. So let's say round it up to four dollars in Louisiana plus three. That's seven. Well, so it, it's not exactly a worldwide market. I mean, the fact that LNG is very strong in Europe and very strong in China helps because. Of the 94 Bs a day that's produced in the U.S., about 11, an increasing amount in three years' time, it may be 14 or 15, goes to LNG. That's good. The gas producers are under the same constraints that the oil producers are. You cannot, the capital markets will not let you spend uh, in CapEx more than 60% of your cash flow. You don't have LNG imports. Here's the problem, though. In the near term, it's been warm, warmer than normal. So the natural gas price, which was like five and a half dollars for the near month, is down at least a buck and a half. The impact on 23 and 24 is kind of modest because it, you know, they hung in at three dollars, three and a quarter, so the backwardation is less. But weather is kind of the same kind of a problem as you know, Omicron would be for oil demand. Longer term. As utilities either contract or build their own solar and wind, one of the principal uses for uh, for uh, natural gas in this country is making power of the 90 Bs of production. Actually, it's 90, 94 Bs now. The 90 Bs of production, you know, about a third of it, one way or another, is power demand. And that's going to be flat to down. Now, because... Wind and solar are variable. Some days it doesn't blow. Some days it's cloudy. Obviously, solar doesn't work well in darkness. So power pricing can be very volatile. If you're a gas producer and you can get your debt down to less than one times cash flow, not hedge, you're going to enjoy the benefits of that volatility. So that is the way to run the business. Just one troublesome thing on natural gas before we get off to interest rates. In the time when gas ran up to $5, $5.5, $6, everyone said, well, no one can produce any more gas. Wrong. Natural gas production went up by four B's a day, you know, on top of 90, so 91 to 94. As it turns out, this, you can track this by tracking pipelines. Platts does that. About two bees has come from the Hainesville, which is now up to around 14 bees a day. The Marcellus and the Utica, which didn't even exist 10 years ago, are now 34 or 5 bees a day. And then there's about 20 bees a day of associated gas that comes from the Permian. And then there are odds, bits and pieces around. I do not believe that natural gas producers are spending not more than two thirds of their cash flow and that's what they're being held to account by the public markets and, and private markets as well, I think it would be hard to maintain that 94 Bs a day of production. So there should be some chance to make money here, and there is the volatility. Look what happened in, trapl- trapl- in winter storm Uri in Texas in February. Natural gas went to $200. I mean, there were some unhedged gas companies it, even though gas wasn't that strong for the first quarter, still recorded average prices of 5 and a half or $6. So there is an opportunity here if you stay low leverage and unhedged and you're good at drilling wells and, and having shale gas wells pay out in the year and whatnot. It's not a bad business. Once again, you have to pay a dividend, use 35% of your cash flow to pay a dividend, buy in some stock. You, know, you can create a pretty good record. I just want to cover interest rates, and then we'll get on to tech stuff. But how in the world is inflation running at 6% a year and the 10-year bond at 1.5%? How in the world is that happening? A good expression in capital markets is don't fight the tape. I do not believe that the long bond can stay at 1.5%. Even if the inflation rate goes from 6% down to 3 or 4%, remember the Fed or all central banks were trying to get it up to 2%. They were more worried about inflation. So they said to a one, all the central banks of the world, it can run over 2% a little. Well, 6% is way over. But let's say it calms down to 4% by the second quarter of next year. How in the world is the long bond the 10-year bond just stay at one and a half percent if the federal reserve papers and 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 goes from buying you know 120 billion a month down to none a month and then eventually stops replacing the maturities and the and the interest coupons how in the world is that going to stay at one and a half percent i just don't believe it i mean it that would be defying gravity What is the impact on equity valuations, on real estate valuations, on crypto valuations? I mean, it has to be the case that we've been awash in capital. And while until recently, we didn't have inflation of consumer and wholesale prices, we certainly had inflation of asset values. Now, what is the way to handle this if you own 10 stocks, which, of course, is what Mike and I advocate You've got to make sure that they have good cash flow characteristics. Why is that important? Well, if the overall valuation of all equities goes down, it's very important to have a company that doesn't need to raise capital, that has free cash flow and is growing. Does it hurt to have something that you pay $20 for, go to $80, and then come back to $50? Yeah, you're going to hate it, but you're you're investing over a 10-year period. As long as you can have the nerves to see, because overall valuation, see it come from 80 to 50, and you have some cash, you can try to pick a time like at 50 where you think it's a good buy. But if it generates free cash flow, more cash flow than it needs, it can always buy in stock, which isn't the worst thing in the world to do. It can have a dividend so you get paid something while you wait. And more importantly, It's not dependent on the capital market to raise more money. It grows and generates cash flow. And with that, I swing over. Mike and I were talking earlier. I mean, NVIDIA is way overpriced. NVIDIA uh, can't really possibly be worth what it's trading for. On the other hand, if you look at the history of NVIDIA, it generates free cash flow. It pays a dividend. It has a huge proprietary position off and on over these weekends. I've switched to a a new book I'm reading by Mark Bills, making the case that there's going to be so much server farm activity, not only big server farms where you have cheap power prices, but then edge network facilities where you get the uh, servers uh, closer to where you actually Consuming the uh, the streaming services or the uh, internet services, whatever is being used. This is an incredible market. Now, there is a downside here because the people that own the server farms, the Amazons, the Microsofts, they can design their own chips. They can go to Taiwan Semiconductor or Samsung and buy the chips. However, NVIDIA has shown an uncanny ability to have the intellectual property to be able to make these chips and these server farms use the NVIDIA equipment. And with that, I've used too much of the airways, gonna turn the rest of the 30 minutes over the bike, with the lead in on NVIDIA.
0: Sure, so so on that topic in particular, it's, it's even surprising to me how much there's been a prol- proliferation of data centers. I was talking to my mom recently and the town that I grew up in in Virginia. Now that main highway is lined with data centers. It's an opportunity obviously for the large cloud providers, Microsoft, Amazon, et cetera, and some smaller players for that matter. The software that sits on top of that infrastructure, though, is what's important. And that's what makes it usable. That's what makes it possible for your TikTok video to load instantaneously, no matter where you are in the world. Frankly, any country, any place is because those, these different types of data centers and a level of software that sits on top of them that makes it easy and fast to get data to your mobile handset as soon as possible. As we build out larger and bigger data centers and more edge data centers, different solutions will develop that'll enable new things, better user experiences, maybe totally different business models. And I think that's where I wanna hit on NVIDIA is they're not just technologically a better company. They do make great chips, no question about that. Their GPUs are top of the line. The reason that I think it's a sustainable long-term business is a little different, though. It's because they have a software package that the developers, whether it's game developers or people writing artificial intelligence software or what have you, use. And that those software libraries make their hardware more valuable, which is why they're able to command a higher price for their products than other competitors. So. I think the point is is that with all of this tech stuff, it's not just the technology that's important. It's the business model and the go-to-market that determine whether our company has a long-term opportunity to be successful. And the same thing applies to non-tech businesses, right? We talk about Fastenal, for one, that had a very unique business model, and that business model albeit with a little bit of technology attached to it, but for the most part, it was a business model innovation has outperformed over a very long period of time.
1: Yeah, one thing that, that Mike and I have a some daylight between what I think may be the case, and he's much more qualified, and that is the providers of cloud services, which is basically to go to any, client, an individual, a small business, a very large business, a government entity like the CIA or the Defense Department, and say, rather than have your own servers, we can do a better job. We can provide more security. We can have more backup. You see, we have we will be a more reliable service. Starting with Amazon Web Services, Microsoft in second position. Google in third position, uh, I don't know, Oracle in fourth position, that business become integral to everything that goes on in communications, in media, and whatnot. I believe that the Microsofts, the Amazons, especially the Microsoft, especially the Oracles, are going to provide the software to go along with the cloud services and so a snowflake which everyone in the software business thinks has a terrific record a very high valued stock i think is vulnerable because the people providing the cloud services also will try to provide the same kind of service that that uh, snowflake provides mike's more current on the company and Mike, of course, as you know from prior Wednesdays, is pretty high on Salesforce as as another entity that will allow customers from small to large uh, organize themselves and make better use of all the capabilities that cloud services provide. I'm just not sure. And with that, going to turn it back to Mike, because I think Mike believes down to his toes That there's going to be a software business that uh, is unaffiliated with the cloud providers that is going to have a role and will have the same or similar growth characteristics to the NVIDIAs providing chips and other equipment intellectual property for the server farms and the cloud Providers themselves, but with that, Michael, close out our thirty minutes on that subject.
0: Okay, so so to hit on the topic of the software that runs on these services, regardless of whose it runs on, you you hinted at the sales process, and I think the sales process is in a way very good for most of these companies because any enterprise sale boils down to what's my ROI on this project, and companies like Salesforce companies like Snowflake have all gotten very good at defining what success is for their customers and implementing and executing that success. There's a reason everybody was excited uh, about the the CEO of of Snowflake coming in because he's that sort of runs that sort of sales organization. The second piece is whether or not the cloud providers are gonna compete with a Salesforce and or Snowflake or any other cloud delivered service for that matter. And I'm less worried about that threat for a couple of reasons. One, take a Fortune 500 company, for example, in general, you think about your strategic position as an IT department or as a business as a whole, you don't want to be too dependent on any one supplier. So you can make the strategic choice like Netflix to go all in on AWS. And then you you are sort of beholden to that one supplier. Or you can make a decision to spread it around a little bit, if you will. And a product like uh, Snowflake makes it relatively easy for a company to do that as far as moving workloads between different cloud providers. So I think that there's different approaches that different companies will take, which means that there will be opportunity for both the incumbents and standalone SaaS businesses as well. Great.
1: We've run through our 30 minutes. Everyone stay healthy, stay well. Pick up 10 Qs, 10 Ks. See if you can discern some some value. And for the holiday weeks, we'll be here at 3.30 Wednesday, same as any other week. So with the holidays coming on Saturday, Mike and I can say we will have done 52 Wednesdays. So everyone take care and be well. Bye-bye.
0: joining us this week. Please tune into us again next week as we'll be back on Wednesday. As a reminder, nothing on this podcast should be considered investment advice. You should always do your own work to determine if an investment is suitable for you.